church uh, near Lake Michigan, north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for nine years before uh, Grace Point Church called me here. And uh, there's some great people back there, and we got to visit with many of them. We went back for a wedding primarily of our missionary friends, Ron and Duane Rissi, their daughter, who they adopted in the tribe in Indonesia. Uh, we met her in 1995 when she was about four years old. So she got married this summer to a tribal young man from the tribe. And they had an Indonesian wedding in June and then another wedding here in Wisconsin uh, that we went to, and I had a part of that. Uh, so uh, as you think of Grace Bible Church back there, you might uh, thank God for them because uh, it is said that it takes four years to get through seminary and four years to get over it. And <laughs> encourage you, Dan. Yeah, there we go. And uh, Grace Bible Church allowed me to uh, mature and grow in pastoral ministry and make a lot of mistakes, and they put up with some of my shenanigans. Uh, so uh, the great people back there, it was good to see some of them as we were able to. Uh, but we had a time at this wedding. And what was interesting is my mentor, Dr. Paul Thyron, who now is pastor of Grace Bible Church back there, he and I each had a part of this wedding, although we were not the officiants. And that Friday evening at the rehearsal down in West Bend, Wisconsin, at uh, the Bible Church there, we were both sitting watching the goings-on of rehearsals, and both of us have done enough rehearsals to be able to measure that. And I leaned over to Paul, and I said, Paul, isn't this great? For once, we're not in charge. And uh, he agreed. And, uh, but wedding, it was a great celebration, a good time, a good wedding. And we had a great time traveling also. Uh, but let me tell you, I am thankful that I live out west, and I'm thankful to be here. And uh, we enjoyed it back there. It's a beautiful country, but all the cows are black and white, all the barns are red, and all the farmhouses are white. And everything is so green, it hurt my eyes. So, <laughs> so it is good to be back here in Ephrata with you all and back at Grace Point Church. Very thankful for it. And while I was away, uh, the elders and the deacons uh, just fulfilled their role, I want to really encourage Grace Point Church, and if you're a guest here today, it is very healthy to hear from different voices, to have men of God who are able to preach and proclaim God's truth. It doesn't depend on one person, and so Wes uh, covered the book of Titus for us while I was gone, part of the time I was gone, then I returned, he finished up Titus, and then last week I got some kind of plague, and so I called Mike Wren at 6 o'clock Saturday night. And I heard he did a great job last Sunday morning. So thank you, Wes. Thank you, Mike. And also uh, Paul Mayhew, while he was here, he officiated at the Smith Memorial Service. And I appreciate that. And all of you who helped with that, the deacons, the elders, thank you so much. And uh, it's a very healthy thing that a local church has uh, people who can teach and take uh, a responsibility for different things like that. So both Don and I are very thankful, but we are glad to be back. One of the verses that always inspires me to take a break, uh, to take a little bit of a break, because we Americans are notorious for not taking vacations. I don't know if you knew that, but statistically, we do not take vacations very well. And if we do, we always have that cell phone and we're always working. Uh, but Ecclesiastes 10.10, Solomon writes there, If the axe is dull and does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Of course, you're probably thinking this guy was gone so long he could have forged his own axe in that time. So, uh, but uh, last week, uh, being ill, I was trying to figure out what it was, and my conclusion is it's scurvy or the potato famine. I don't know, but it was a plague knocked me out, so I'm thankful 
for this church family and for the proclamation of God's word. Thinking about rest, uh, I'm not a music guy. I don't read music because in the seventh grade where you're supposed to learn that, for some odd reason, I spent most of music classes in the dean's office. I don't, I don't know why, but uh, actually I do. And, uh, but anyway, I didn't learn to read music, and so music is a little bit of a mystery to me, especially the notes on a page. But I was reading this week about a well-known or universally recognized piece of music, one of the most recognizable pieces of music of all time, is Beethoven's Fifth, uh, Fifth Symphony, excuse me, Fifth Symphony. I was going to hum it for you, but I don't want Ludwig getting after me when I get to heaven. And so we want to make sure we don't do that. But you would recognize it if you heard. But what you may not know about that piece of music, unless you do read music, is the fact that it begins with an eighth note of rest. An eighth note of rest before the first thing sounds. That's a song that begins with a rest. And I thought about that. It creates a uniquely powerful melody. Uh, the strategic eighth note of rest continues through this whole song, through all that music, and it's an unusual way. Of course, Beethoven was a genius musically, and it's an unusual way to begin a piece of music. But realize that as Christians, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not about doing, it's about what Christ has already done. And the Christian life really begins with the eighth note of rest. It should begin that way. The Christian life begins with the rest, and so God can make a beautiful symphony out of your life and my life as believers in Jesus Christ when we first and foremost find our rest in him. I've told you many times before, I try to make it a habit when my head hits the pillow at night to thank God for his sovereignty. Whatever has happened during the day that I can rest in God's character. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So remember that, the eighth note of rest. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, which you've given to us. And we in this country have the privilege of having it in our own heart language. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for that blessing and thank you for the freedom we enjoy here to meet in this building, for your provision of this campus for many decades. And Lord, as you give us our days, may we always turn to you and remember that you are the one who is the sufficient one. And you are the one who goes before us and behind us and surrounds us with your love. Thank you for your grace and mercy today. Thank you for your word we pray for today that each one of us would allow you to teach us to apply your truth as you would see fit in each individual life, and that we would recognize that it is a gift from you and your Holy Spirit unwraps it and applies it in each life. Thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery. Thank you for those who minister and care for our children. And we pray for them, that each one would grow in your grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ this day. We thank you for our military men and women around the world. Pray for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, that they would have a strong testimony of your grace and especially for those who are in harm's way, Lord, that they would rest in you. And, Lord, we thank you for them. Thank you for the freedom we enjoy. We pray for our president, others in leadership in this very contentious time. Lord, we pray that there would be heart change and people would really seek your will and not their own will. And, Lord, we thank you for this passage here this morning. We thank you for your grace and mercy. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. 
We've been in the book of Ephesians. I actually looked at the calendar, uh, my preaching calendar, and we've been in the book of Ephesians for a little over a year. And uh, so you would think this little short book, just a few pages long, we've been in it every Sunday. Well, not every Sunday, but uh, for almost a year uh, as we've been going through the letter to Ephesians. Just a little bit of review. In fact, when I saw that and I realized how many Sundays I've been gone, I thought, well, we may as well just start over, you know, because (laughs) we've all forgotten Uh, what Paul is communicating to us in the book of Ephesians. Well, I won't do that, but I want to review very quickly. If you're familiar or not familiar with the book of Ephesians, it neatly divides in two. The Apostle Paul is very good at uh, giving us the wealth of our salvation. He's talking about the position in Christ, the great blessings and the great gifts of what Jesus Christ has done for us in chapters 1 through 3. And so when you think about Ephesians, think of chapters 1 through 3. These are the things that were given as believers in Jesus Christ. Remember, the book was written to believers. They're called saints in verse 1. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint, which basically means one who is set apart unto God's holiness because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so chapters 1 through 3 are the wealth we have. Chapters Four and five really are the walk, in other words, the lifestyle of how we are to live out our lives. And there's very practical instruction there of how to live out the Christian life in light of the blessings that we are recipients of. And then chapter six, you could you could call that the warfare chapter. In that we see that the reality of spiritual warfare, because Satan does not want you to flourish. Satan does not want you to grow in the faith. Satan does not want your family to flourish in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of us, in a sense, have a target on our backs if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. First Peter, Peter writes in First Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring, roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And in our discussion of spiritual warfare, I cautioned us against two extremes. One is that we don't give any attention to the idea of Satan in Scripture and how God has revealed him in Scripture. Or the other thing is we attribute way too much power to Satan. But there's a balance point here, and the balance is found in the Word of God. We know that we have an adversary. Paul declares it here very clearly. And in the weeks before I went on vacation, we went through the spiritual armor, which is really a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is birthed out of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And so the reality is, is that when we put on spiritual armor, it's not our uh, abilities, it's not our wisdom, it's not our knowledge, it's not our intellect, it's not our physical strength, none of those things, but it is Jesus Christ that we're putting on. And of course, the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. And then the Apostle Paul comes to this in verse 18. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 20 today. And in this walk, he is wrapping up the book of Ephesians. We're quickly coming to a close in this. And in verse 18, he tells us about prayer. He changes the subject a little bit and starts talking and encouraging us in the whole arena of prayer. I think it is uh, Jack Hayford who said, prayer is not a mystical experience for a few special people, but an aggressive act, an act that may be performed by anyone who is willing to accept the challenge to learn how to pray. And I think I've included some quotes in the bulletin there about the fact you can go to all sorts of seminars and lectures on prayer, but unless you actually participate, unless you you learn how to pray, it's not going to do you much good. I was thinking of newer vehicles. 
Now, some of you drive newer vehicles where you don't have a key. Is that, is that correct? I still have a key. I'm not caving in to that other thing, but uh, you don't have a key. You have a fob that you put in your pocket. You climb in and push a button. It starts. And uh, my son-in-law, his dad had bought a new pickup a couple years, a year ago, and we happened to be in Montana at that time, and uh, Doug was not used to the new fob thing, and so evidently with that particular model, if you wander away from it, leave it running, and you wander away more than 30 feet, the horn starts honking. And, of course, he was at the house at 4.30 in the morning, so everybody got to enjoy the serenade of the horn honking, and he couldn't figure out uh, what was going on, at least that first couple of times. But I was thinking of that key fob, and it's always with you. You go out, and it releases the power of that vehicle. That's the way you're going to release the horsepower of that engine and be able to utilize it, and it'll take you places that you would take you a long time to walk. Uh, but And we've become dependent upon that, and we've become very used to a system like that. I was thinking about that. I think maybe for believers, and I'm speaking as much to myself as anybody else, I need a prayer fob in my pocket, you know. I need something maybe that reminds me that he, he's always with us, and if we wander too far, that some horn, celestial horn, would blare and say, you're getting too far away. You know, we need to be in close fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do that through prayer. In fact, one author said that the, the Christian army is the only army that advances on its knees. And there is some truth to that because prayer is the ultimate thing. My friend, the missionary Ron Rissi uh, in Indonesia, he always jokes, you know, he says, when facing impossible circumstances and everybody's trying to figure out how to deal with certain issues or problems, finally somebody will say, well, let's pray about it. And Ron will jokingly say, oh, you mean it's come to that? We've got to pray? You know, it's that bad. We've got to pray about it. And so we come to this passage today, and we come to this whole issue of prayer. And lest you think in these three verses, verses 18 through 20, uh, that I'm kind of belaboring three verses, yet they are rich. In fact, I've mentioned William Gurnall before in chapter 6 as we've been in here. William Gurnall was a commentator, a theologian from days gone by, and he wrote a book, a series of book on the letter, books on commentaries on the letter of Ephesians. And on chapter 6 alone, he wrote a book that's 1,200 pages long. And uh, I know I have not read it, but I am aware of it. And in fact, one thing about Gernal's book is he spent 300 pages of that book on these three verses, 100 pages per verse. And so if you don't get enough here this morning, I would submit to you that you get William Gernal's book called The Christian in Complete Armor, The Christian in Complete Armor. And so we come to this passage in verse 18, and we see two things basically in this Three verses, first of all, verse 18, prayer is expansive, and I'll explain that in a moment. And then Paul uses himself as an illustration of prayer in verses 19 and 20, where he is asking the, the people of Ephesus to pray for him. And he prays for two things, asks for two things in that. But first, let's look at verse 18, prayer that is expansive. Uh, in some of your versions, you will not be able to pick this up, but basically there is the letter, the little word all, A-L-L. And it occurs four times in this verse. And that's why I say that prayer is expansive. And the Apostle Paul is calling us prayer for the strength of life in four times in the word all. First of all, there's a variety of prayer. Look again at verse 18. 
with all prayer and petition, with all prayer and petition. Now, sometimes we think, well, why does it seems redundant? Prayer and petition isn't prayer about asking about things. Well, there are two different words that are used here. And one, the first one, with all prayer, refers to general conversation. It's like having an ongoing conversation with God. And then the petition is refers to specific, special prayers, stressing a sense of need. It's specific and stressing a sense of need. You know, all forms of communicate in all forms of communication with God, prayer is not the position our body takes. Uh, the pivotal factor is our attitude in our communication with God. Posture, language, place, or time are not primary matters, uh, as sometimes we are taught as children. It's like that. But in the Bible, we see that people pray while they're kneeling. We see that they pray while they're standing, sitting lying flat on their faces with their hands uplifted. They pray silently, aloud, alone, together at fixed times, at all times, everywhere they're at, in bed, in an open field, in a temple, at a riverside, on the seashore, on the battlefield, spontaneously, liturgically, and for everything in God's will. So we see a lot of different uh, positions, if you will, when people pray. And when you think about it, you don't take one position when you talk to a loved one, do you? I mean, you, you talk to them in different ways, and you have an ongoing conversation. One of the things that's been helpful with me over the years is the little acronym, and I think Wes has taught on it, I've taught on it before, the little acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, to help in your prayer life. Adoration is the A, C is confession, T is thanksgiving, S is supplication. Now, we don't want to make our prayer lives formulaic, but if that helps you, as it has helped me over the years, to remember to adore God, confess any known sin, be thankful, and then make my request, my supplications known to him, A-C-T-S, Acts. And so we see here that the variety of prayer, all prayer and, and petition. And so this whole idea that there's an everything to it, Secondly, the frequency of prayer. Look again at verse 18. All prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul is not saying that we pray all day long to the detriment of our families, to our work, to everything else. But it's an ongoing conversation. It's constant prayer. We see that throughout Scripture. Pray always in Luke 21 giving ourselves continually to pray in the early church in Acts 6, Acts 10. Cornelius prayed to God always, continuing diligent in prayer. So in other words, it's a habit. It's a way that we move through life. One of the major uh, illustrations of this in my own life is we lived, when we lived in Dallas, we had good friends, Alan Kay, and Al owned his own business. He was a heating and air conditioning guy. And once in a while, I would go with him in his van out to work on some building, a commercial building typically, and we'd get up on the roof where the air conditioners were, and Al was a man of prayer. And I mean, he just had a conversation with God. It was kind of a running conversation. As I observed that, I, I just loved the way he did that. And then when he prayed for Don and I during our seminary studies, he would always pray in such depth. And I think it was traced back to the fact that he was always talking to God in one way or another. And it wasn't weird, but he would ask God for help, even with his air conditioner. You know, sometimes we think God is too busy for us to bother him with the small things of life. And yet I have found that it's in the small things that God can show himself strong. So we continue in prayer. Philippians says, in everything by prayer, prayer. 
And in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, without ceasing day and night in 2 Timothy. It's constant prayer, God consciousness. And in a sense, uh, maybe a, an illustration would be like when you've had a, a cough that just won't go away, uh, 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 you know, and, and it just, you know, that, that's kind of a negative example, but the idea is, is that we just continually uh, communicate with God. And we pray here, and the key is, is praying in the Spirit. Notice that, pray at all times in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit. If it's not energized by the Holy Spirit, we're talking to ourselves. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes there in verses 26 through 27, says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so that should be an encouragement to all of us that sometimes we don't know how to pray. Sometimes the words elude us. We're in deep distress or problems or somebody we know is and we really don't know how to pray. And we're to be encouraged that the Holy Spirit also helps in our weakness. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, the Holy Spirit is one in direct communication in that sense, and he helps us in our weaknesses in that. E. Stanley Jones said that prayer is surrender. When you think about it, why would I pray? It's because I recognize that I need to surrender, submit myself to a being that is higher than me, that is more powerful and has all the answers and knows all things. Prayer is surrender, Jones says, surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. And he goes on to use an illustration from uh, nautical life. He says, if you're out on the lake in a boat and you throw a, a line to shore, do you pull the shore to yourself? No, you pull yourself to the shore. And he says that's the idea of prayer as we are not aligning God's will to our will, but our will to God's will in that sense. And so there is the variety of prayer with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit. And thirdly, the third all is the manner of prayer be on alert with all perseverance and petition. So there's this idea that we are on the alert in our prayer. We are watchful in that sense, that we are aware of our surroundings, of what's going on not only in our own life, but our family's life, our church's life, friends, family, and so it goes with all perseverance and petition. Petitions here are requests that are specific, requests that are specific. Jesus encourages us to pray specifically in John chapter 14. We pray for others for spiritual issues. So variety of prayer, all prayer and petition, frequency at all times in the spirit, the manner of prayer, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. And then the fourth all is indirect objects of prayer for all the saints. Notice in verse 18, he says, pray for all the saints. Now, uh, we don't know all the saints by name, do we? All the saints around the world. But it does tell us that As we learn about situations, just like this church has learned more and more about mainland China, about the oppression the believers over there are experiencing, we can pray specifically for Paul and Diana Mayhew as they minister over there. We can pray specifically for those people we met and know in the churches in Macau and Hong Kong. And yet uh, we don't know the names of everybody who's a believer up in the mainland and who are being persecuted and oppressed by the government. But yet we can pray in generalities, but pray for all the saints in that sense that we pray for them, for the saints, and pray for one another. Steve Farrar, in his book, Point Man, which is 
an older book now, but he tells the story about George McCluskey. Uh, when McCluskey, George McCluskey got married and they started a family, he decided at that point to invest one hour a day in prayer because he wanted his children to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. After a time, he expanded his prayers to include his children and finally his great-grandchildren. Every day between 11 in the morning and noon, he prayed for the next three generations of his family. As the years went by, his two daughters committed and believed in Jesus Christ for uh, salvation and married men who went into vocational ministry. Uh, those two couples produced four girls and one boy. And from the girls, each one of the girls married a minister and the boy became a pastor. And then from that generation, the first two children born were two boys. Upon graduation from high school, the two cousins chose the same college and became roommates. During their sophomore year, one of the boys decided to go into pastoral ministry. The other one didn't. He undoubtedly felt some pressure to continue the family leg legacy, but he chose instead to pursue his interest in psychology. He earned his doctorate and eventually wrote book for books for parents and became, that became bestsellers. He started a radio program heard on more than 1,000 stations each day, and that man's name was James Dobson. Through the prayers of his grandfather, George McCluskey, he infected, God infect, affected more than just one family. But we don't know as we pray for our children, our grandchildren, and so on, and others within our realm of influence, what God's going to do. And that's exciting that the all-powerful God can take that and do what he wants. Phillips Brooks said, pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God in answering it will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings, Phillips Brooks said. And so we come to verses 19 and 20, and this is the illustration from the Apostle Paul. This is the application of this pray for all things and pray at all times and pray with all petitions and pray for all the saints. He prays for care. He wants us to pray for clarity and courage. This is an intercessory prayer. Look at verse 19 where he says there, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He's asking that we would pray for clear communication for those and for all of us when we share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for the proclaimer. Pray for the opening of our mouths. When you think about it, we need to pray for one another. We especially need to pray for those who teach and preach God's word, that we would remain accurate and pray for that clarity. And then also pray for courage. Notice he uses that word boldness twice. With boldness, the mystery of the gospel, the end of verse 19, for which I am an ambassador in change, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That word boldly, that's translated boldly in this version, is, really means fearlessness, fearlessness. And when you think about it, if you know much about the Apostle Paul's life, it seems like this was the most bold a guy who didn't fear anything when you trace him through the book of Acts. Paul uses that word. Why would he be fearless? It seems strange to us because we think of him as the eminently brave, courageous one because he was before rioting mobs here in Ephesus, before kings like Agrippa, Felix, and Nero, the powers of that day. He was in natural disasters like the storm that sunk the ship he was on. He was in prison facing death. In fact, right now, he is in prison as he writes this, and he, he is under house arrest. But we don't see people's hearts. We don't see what they're going through. They may seem strong and self-composed on the outside, 
uh, but does not mean that they're not trembling within. In fact, in the book of Corinthians, the apostle Paul said, in weakness and in fear with much trembling that he was writing to them. You think of the one uh, fearless person you know the best and uh, the one who presents the gospel without hesitation in the most difficult circumstances and pray that they would remain fearless. Pray that you could be fearless and have great courage in your realm, in your arena of influence, whether it's in your neighborhood, in your own family, perhaps in your schools, in, 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 the, in your workplace, wherever you find yourself, that we would be bold and fearless in that. And pray that the holy would remain holy and the visionary might remain visionary and great prayer warriors might be faithful in their prayer. And then the Apostle Paul uses an unusual term here. He's an ambassador in chains. That word that's translated there, it's signifying gold ornamentation worn by ambassadors on festive occasions to display the wealth, and power, and dignity of their government uh, that they represent. But Paul serves the risen Christ, Christ who was crucified. And he considers the painful iron chains appropriate insignia to represent his Lord. He was an ambassador in change. And in the sense, you and I are the same thing. We are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ to this community, to the surrounding area, and to the watching world to say the right things. Don't pray to escape trouble. Don't pray to be comfortable in your emotions. Pray to do the will of God in every situation. Nothing else is worth praying for. We're instructed here on this idea of prayer and that we should be a people of prayer. And uh, sometimes people will ask me, and I've probably had the question in the past too, why should we pray if God is all-knowing? He knows what we need before we pray. He knows our situation and circumstances. Why should we pray? And that's a good question. I think it deserves an answer. Because, first of all, because we as Christians should be more concerned about God's interest than anything else. Jesus taught his disciples to pray first for God's concerns. What is God's will in this? When we analyze and evaluate our own prayer life, am I praying the things that Jesus Christ would pray? That's why we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Could Jesus really say the prayer that we're praying? Do we know uh, for a fact that it would be his will? We can pray for the salvation of our friends and neighbors and those who don't know Jesus as Savior because we know that God's will is that he desires all to be saved and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's his desired will. It's not his determined will, like gravity is a determined will, but God desires all to come to know. So we can pray for unsaved loved ones in that. I think, secondly, the big, big answer for me is because we see Jesus praying. In the, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus prayed at crucial times and probably more than it's recorded. He prayed when he was baptized. He prayed when he chose the disciples. He prayed at the transfiguration. He, was in, when he prayed when he was in sustained and exhausting ministry. He, when he called Lazarus forth from the tomb, he prayed. When he was burdened for Simon Peter and on and on. There's many instances of Jesus praying. And if our Savior is a man of prayer, he's a God of prayer, uh, who knows all things, that we should be also. And because God does not exist for us, thirdly, we exist for him. I uh, was convicted a bit this week by an article I read. It's actually a blog post, but uh, the title of that article is, Are You a Trifler? Are You a Trifler? And so I'm going to share that with you. A trifler, and it's spelled T-R-I-F-L-E-R. -E it's not a word we hear very often, but if you go to the dictionary, to trifle means to talk 
or to act frivolously. If you're a trifler, you're not taking things seriously. You're not pursuing them with a purpose. John Wesley, who was a great evangelist and uh, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, John Wesley warned his itinerant preachers against being triflers in religion. He wrote this, Fix some part of every day for private exercises, whether you like it or no. Read and pray daily. It is for your life. There is no other way, else you will be a trifler all of your days. Wesley was calling for people to take personal responsibility for their spiritual growth. They would grow only by being engaged in the word of God and communicating with the God who created them and saved them. And so the question is, is do I do that? Do you do that? And uh, that is a good question because we can suffer what I call spiritual frostbite and go through the motions without uh, knowing the deepness of this. Wesley practiced what he preached. He looked for ways to express his spiritual life throughout the day. Whether he was traveling or working or with family, he was intent on devoting his life to Christ. He did not try to have a devotional time. Isn't that shocking? He did not try to have a devotional time as he tried so much as to have a devotional life. You see the difference? There is a difference between having a quiet time and living a devotional life. Quite a difference. Well, it is certainly appropriate to have a quiet time with God at the beginning and end of the day. We must, we must not see it as time equal to a devotional life or separate from the rest of our daily activities. The Apostle Paul has said, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.21. He expected believers to seek Christ first. That seeking did not only happen for a few minutes in the morning and then another few minutes in the evening. Uh, you are to put the things of Christ first all the time, every day and every way. If that is not true of you, you are just trifling, the article goes on to say. We pray that we are not triflers. It's a serious business. This has eternal demands and eternal consequences that we would be a people who show the world that we are not triflers in religion, but believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And I pray, Lord, today that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would not be triflers in religion, that we would honor and glorify you, and that we would have a God consciousness no matter what we're doing, whether we're working out in the field, in the factory, or in the school doing our schoolwork, or at home doing homemaking, whatever we do, and that we would be conscious of your presence. And as Brother Andrew said, we'd have a, a consciousness of your presence at all times. And Lord, that we would communicate with you and that we would share our thoughts, our praises, and that you would be glorified through it all. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. Pray.